0: Welcome to the New Models Podcast. In this episode, we speak with communist and professor of literature and critical theory at UC Davis, Joshua Clover, who has authored several books, including Riot Strike Riot. We recorded this conversation in early June, shortly after widespread street protests erupted across the United States in response to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other Black Americans at the hands of the police. With recent unrest as our point of departure, this broad and ultimately hopeful discussion offers a transhistorical framework for public uprisings that includes discussion of violence, UBI, the policy left, the long tradition of communist and socialist principles and black radical thought, surplus value, digital platforms, and the notion of territory in the Anthropocene. If the answers in this conversation contradict your understanding of the world, Try listening while suspending your disbelief in the impossible. In this episode, Joshua Clover flicks his lighter at the other end of capitalism's dark tunnel, giving us a glimpse of what could lie ahead. I'm Lil' Internet, joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Let's get into it.
1: Today, we're speaking to Joshua Clover, a widely published essayist, poet, and cultural theorist. He is the author of several books, including Riot Strike Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, which was published by Verso in 2016. He is also a communist and a professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis. Joshua, welcome to the New Models podcast. Where are you right now?
2: I'm in California.
1: How are things going there?
2: Well, you know, I don't want to offer too much of a direct description, only because I've not been able to be out on the streets. I don't know how it's been for you, but a lot of my friends uh, who I do political organizing with, we've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of months about politics during the pandemic. As you know, there's been shelter-in-place orders across the United States and quarantine. And we were all pretty demoralized about the idea that uh, this sort of made street politics Impossible, and it turns out that's not true. Right, and street politics is very, very much back with us, and that I find heartening.
1: Yeah, we really appreciated your sixty-six days essay that you published on the Verso blog. Uh, I wonder, as a way of beginning perhaps we could start by anchoring this conversation in your book, Riot Strike Riot, and lay out some context for the mood of the time in which it was written. When I first learned of it, I tagged it in my mind as somehow loosely connected to the early 2000s writings of Takoon, the coming insurrection, etc. But in your book, which is published in 2016, the riots have already arrived. I wonder if you could reconstitute for us that time and what compelled you to write this theory of collective protest at that moment?
2: The first thing I should say is I don't think I have the same politics as the people we call the tycoonists and Invisible Committee. Of course, I, I know those people and count some of them as friends, but uh, I don't think I have quite the same politics. That said, I really remember reading The Coming Insurrection. Like, I remember distinctly the day someone who had helped with the English translation handed me a copy of it. And a bunch of other people, sort of, we all got copies, and we ran off and read it immediately. And it was very, uh, felt very important and provocative, energetic, and exciting for us. So I I think you're right that that's part of the. That said, maybe around 2011 or 2012, after the time of Occupy Oakland and various events there, including the shutdown of the port in Oakland, my scholarly life and my political organizing life flowed together. And I saw that I could make use of my studies in critical political economy and histories of capitalism. And so this was before a sort of major wave of riots in the United States, most famously the two sets of riots in 2014 that I call Ferguson One and Ferguson Two, Uh after the murder of Michael Brown. Uh, And then massive riots the year after that in Baltimore, where there was nine days of martial law. Uh, and then in Charlotte and various other. Ones. So the book was started actually before those, and then those started to happen as I was finishing the book, which gave me a sense of urgency and trying to account for uh, what was going on. So that's I think that's a little bit of the backstory, right? Is trying to apply a sort of long durée history of capitalism and its social structures to what felt like very immediate local specific dramatic events and and see if those two could come together.
1: Right. Could we just briefly give your definition of riot and strike so that we have those as working coordinates? Because they're so helpful and they've been so helpful for us thinking about these protests.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What's I think most important is that for me, riot and strike are exemplary of these larger categories. Strikes are the exemplary form of a larger category I'd call a production struggle that has to do with people's work situations in which people act as workers, people act to interfere with the operations of their workplace. And they really are the dominant form of political organizing in the West from the mid 19th century onward for a good long while. The riot is the exemplary form of what I call a circulation struggle, right? So circulation in political economy includes Uh, moving goods to market, the exchange of goods, and eventually the consumption of goods. But it's also where people who are unemployed live, right, in the space of circulation. If you're unemployed, you're still market dependent. You still have to buy things. Uh, But you don't have a steady wage, so you can't struggle in the workplace. You're not going to strike. So your struggle is going to be in the space of circulation, uh, and that might be a riot or things that we call a riot or things that resemble a riot that involves struggling over circulation, most famously blocking of roadways. It's become a very standard form of riot. So blocking the circulation of people and goods and capital. That's a classic circulation struggle. So those are my definitions. I should say very clearly: anyone who goes out on the street ready to risk to take risks with themselves, they get to call what they're doing whatever they want, right? It's not for me to say like, "Oh, you're using the wrong name." Um, <laughs> people who people are who are politically committed and principled and fighting, they get to name <laughs> name it however they like.
1: Yeah, for sure. I wonder if I can ask one more establishing question. I know I'm hogging them. No, like, please. Is that okay? You're a great job <laughs> I, hogging. A lot of times when people think of riots, and certainly what's been on everybody's mind the last week is this idea of violence. Could you speak for a little bit about when you see the riots that erupted in Minneapolis, what do you see?
2: The first and most important thing to say is that the violence in this case began, as it always begins, with the police, with the state with the regime of property since it's also the regime of property that the police arm of the state exists to maintain those things are always violent in the first place you think about people being evicted from their homes uh, you think about people uh, being subject to stop and frisk people being subject to mass incarceration communities that are Uh, excluded from the workplace and then managed entirely by the police and juridical system toward incarceration and criminalization, that's violence, right? And that violence is constant. And then that violence all too often condenses into specific acts of violence, like the police officers who killed George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, the three sort of pseudo police officers who killed uh, um, Ahmaud Arbery. So those are the instantiating violences that set these things off. And any discussion of, of the violence of protest that doesn't begin with that shouldn't be taken seriously. Then there's another question about how to understand once the protests have begun, uh, there's a great hurry to name aspects of it as violence. And the main function is probably to split a protest, right? To try and suggest that there's a right way to struggle. And that if you had just agreed to stand on a corner and feel something very intensely, that's legitimate. But if you do anything beyond that, that's illegitimate and and violent. So the rhetoric of violence isn't even descriptive, right? It's just a pure political instrumentality designed to divide movements. The last thing I'll say is, you know, I'm sometimes frustrated in the, what I'll call the extreme humanism of liberal ideology. That said, what's fascinating is given that that's our dominant ideology is the sanctity of the human body and of human life, transcends all others, it's shocking that against that, suddenly people will pretend that there's an equivalence between violence conducted on human bodies and the destruction of property. You know, even within the ideologies of the dominant class, or however we put it, it's literally incomprehensible that that idea could coexist with the sanctity of the human and of humanism that goes along with it. So again, the people who talk that way have lost any claim to legitimacy because their (laughs) own system that they've produced for centuries doesn't make any sense. I,
3: I was just sort of like very I'm very interested in your extreme humanism of liberal ideology take. And I do think this idea of life being this sanctity of life over everything else, you see how that can just be kind of wielded like, as a weapon, where it can be used to justify shaming people for assembling during COVID times, and also the justification for assembling because the risk of life is so great. And if you're gonna look at statistics, okay, uh, your likelihood of dying from COVID is higher than being killed by a cop. And the, and the fact that both of these things are so racialized, I mean, that shouldn't be lost on anybody. So what? how do you account for that sort of just change in attitude so quickly, between 66 days, like you said, And is it actually then just not really about life at stake, but something more symbolic or intrinsic?
2: Maybe something less symbolic. Uh, I mean, I think this is the part where it turns out that Foucauldians don't like me, but I like Foucault. So I hope it's okay. I like Foucault, but he plays a limited role for me. I had read like the seventh philosophical hot take in a row that was about Foucault, right, and about how the pandemic was really demonstrating his insight of the change in, in biopolitics around the end of the 18th century, this shift toward what he refers to as the power of the sovereign to make live and let die. But I had the exact opposite experience, right, which is to say it seemed to me that was the moment when the power to make live and let die, in Foucault's famous formulation, had proved to be not sovereign at all That is to say, it was clear that the economy was calling the tune. And the real question was, it's all about make work, let buy, right? (laughs) But that imperative of having to make people go back to work so that then there could be effective demand so that people could buy things and the economy could keep functioning and pumping, that was clearly the sovereign impulse. And questions about living and dying were entirely subordinate to that and had to respond to that.
3: Something that I think is really counterintuitive about the last couple months, though, is you talk about, yeah, make work and let buy. Wages paradoxically are up for the average worker because of enhanced unemployment benefits, whereas spending is way down just because there's less places to spend and because saving is is up. I think you also use the the idea of a riot is about a price of goods, a strike is about labor power and wage. Clearly this was a riot and not a strike by any definition but how do you account for the fact that, that wages are actually up in this period?
2: Uh, I, I probably need to study the economics a bit more. That A couple of the accounts I've seen of wages being up are phrased in, in terms of wages for those people who are actually working, whereas if you average wages across society, uh, um, women, people who are for some don't have direct access to the wage. And when you have labor participation rates trending down toward 50%, historically low even compared to the Great Depression, I'm not convinced wages are up. As to whether purchasing power is up because of the temporary infusion, the sort of Keynesian infusion of money, whether whether general purchasing power is up, I'm not sure. Whether there's going to be um, an ongoing increase in wages for those people who do work is a great question. Of course, here we want to look at the great scholars of the Black Plague in the 14th century, right? And what happens to Wages and sort of quasi wages because of the way that pay relations work in the 14th century The way that those shift dramatically after the black plague and the massive reduction of the workforce We're in a very diff- different situation now, right? Where we don't have a complete inability to staff all the existing jobs in the world We've had this ongoing increase in what it's called surplus population, right? Of people who are probably never going to find a home in the wage so I doubt that insofar as wages are driven by supply and demand, we're going to see a meaningful increase in wages over the long run. In fact, I think they have to decrease. That's almost inevitable. Uh,
3: okay, this is not, but how would you account for then a more permanent kind of UBI and what kind of effect would that have as an input? Um,
2: boy, you're asking, I admire your faith in me. Is um, <laughs> that like the economics of UBI? There's great scholars out there who spent, who spent their lives <laughs> I'm some guy who's like started worrying about bread riots in the 14th century. So I don't want to, I don't want to claim to be a UBI specialist, but there's two aspects, right? As far as I can tell, one is UBI as a way of trying to restore effective demand, uh, in a Keynesian sense so that an economy can continue and have enough demand that it can keep on employing people and hopefully restart a virtuous cycle. That seems unlikely to me. Um, Various effects to restore effective demand, notably the massive bailouts after 2007, 2008, have been strikingly ineffective at getting capital to start reinvesting um, in in the economy. And I don't think that UBI is gonna cause capital reinvestment, so I don't think it's gonna restore profitability to the industrial economy at all. The other even more cynical account, sort of less economistic, is to understand UBI as a final total replacement for the various kinds of social welfare programs that were brought into being over the course of the 20th century so that UBI will replace people's health coverage, will replace people's unemployment insurance and various other things like that. And people will say like, well, we're giving you $1,000 a month. You're on your own for all those things. And so it won't even increase anyone's purchasing power at all. It'll just shift the burden of the social safety net increasingly toward the private sector.
3: I feel like that's a little bit of a boogeyman because I don't think that many proposals call for that. I know that that's the fear, but I think of it as just being a permanent inflationary input, and I can see how that, in theory, could stimulate demand for a lot longer than seems rational. I don't know, but yeah, let's we can we can pivot. Well, um,
2: I like your optimism. I like your optimism. <laughs> oh,
3: I, oh, you're, I am not <laughs> optimistic at all. I'm just wondering because a lot of things that have happened, it kind of makes me question a lot of my fundamental assumptions about what causes what.
0: I just imagine UBI as being ultimately a payment to not riot, like basically a payoff. I mean, I'd also imagine a huge gray economy popping up to make ends meet for people and also because of that, fueling the uh, prison population even higher. I just don't, I don't imagine there would ever be a generous UBI that would actually be a living wage for anyone. I I don't think it tends, I don't think anyone, even with an increase in wages, I don't think any, like most people in America were surviving very well whatsoever. I mean, what was it, 40% couldn't afford a uh, $600 emergency? I mean, you know, that slight increase in wages, I don't think it says anything about suddenly people being less precarious mm-hmm. in terms of what we where we started in the states before all of this happened.
2: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that that, you know, I tried to formulate the various welfare contracts of the 20th century as buying the social peace. Right? right? And that speaks to a couple of things. One that riots have been actually quite effective as achieving practical reforms, even if they haven't stated that as their intention. But the other is social welfare payments, the way of purchasing the social peace. And UBI, should it arrive, absolutely should be understood in that context that you mentioned as the way of purchasing the social peace. But I don't think it can be sustained, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, purchasing the social peace has historically been a phenomenon of rich societies. And, you know, the United States remains an incredibly wealthy society, but getting less so. Right. And as life expectancies decrease for middle-class white people, the willingness to spend money purchasing the social piece is going to diminish greatly. Uh, And I don't see it as, as being simply, like I'm not a modern monetary theory guy. I don't think you can just crank up the money machine and buy the social piece and have it. Have no consequences.
1: Actually, can you speak about that? (laughs) Although you don't have to speak about it. It's buzzing
3: right now. It's it's hyper Keynesianism,
1: basically.
2: I could work through what I see as the economic theory of it. It would be tedious for all of us. (laughs) I think in the end, you have to believe that there's no relationship between the value of a good and its price. And here I don't just mean in the Marxian sense. You can look at Adam Smith or Ricardo or Malthus or any of these guys who start to realize that value and price are not the same thing. You have to value. You have to believe they're totally detached to believe that MMT can work. That's a very short version of a long economic theory argument. But instead, I'll offer the following, like note on MMT. Frederick Jameson, if I'm allowed to mention him, um, has a really nice sort of formulation of what ideology is that he borrows from Althusser, who's borrowing it from Lacan, who's borrowing it from Levi Strauss. There's a whole intellectual tradition, and eventually Jameson says ideology is the imaginary resolution of real contradictions, right? So things that can't be resolved in reality, we develop sort of imaginary ideas that resolve them for us. That's what MMT yes. is. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: I mean, I would argue a lot of theory is that. But um,
2: Oh, no, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I'd argue a lot of theory. I'd also argue, I mean, because I'm a Grinch, I would yeah. argue that the Green New Deal is that the idea, oh, yes. the, idea of, the idea of green jobs. So yeah, that that would be my verdict on MMT.
3: I have a question: Is there an exemplary riot that comes to mind as being effective in your mind? Is there one? Is there a model? To also follow? also define
1: effective, right? I and mean, achieving
3: social change that it aimed to that it aimed for mm. broadly. Let's say.
2: Um, well. This really, I mean, you know, as Carly suggests, there's so many terms in your question, which is, it's, it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. A but, I, yeah. but I would say, like, the, the riot that began the Haitian Revolution, sure, let's say that one.
3: Okay.
0: <laughs>
2: what
3: is the long-tail result of that riot? And it also and depending on what time frame But also yeah you're exactly of, what time frame yeah. I mean I personally the, the fact that you say Haiti is is quite counterintuitive to me just because there's a, a ton of reasons why Haiti is still impoverished but it's still very impoverished so yeah that's why I wonder what you mean exactly
2: Yeah Haiti is the second poorest nation in the hemisphere Right uh it's extremely impoverished I don't I don't want to deny that right and, the structure of Haiti's impoverishment is as simple as capitalism, right? And I mean, we can think about Hillary Clinton as Obama's secretary of state flying down to Haiti to make sure that the government doesn't increase the minimum wage <laughs> so that Americans still have access to cheap goods. And so like the structure of, and yeah, that's the Obama presidency, right? The structure of maintaining extraordinary poverty in Haiti. That's part of the structure of global capitalism. So if your question is, What's the riot that ended capitalism? Yes, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. You are correct, um, and I absolutely agree. That's the right question, and I absolutely agree. It's still open. The right, like we're we're not a communism yet. So, in that sense, nothing's exemplary. Okay. But then,
1: I mean, also, I mean, riot works to create political pressure for things to change yeah. over longer burn periods. Right. I mean, I, mean he,
3: he, I think you referred to it as ordinal points. And yeah. I thought that was a really useful a good, term. Yeah. Because sure, we think of Ferguson as these landmarks, but trying to think of like, what have they affected? And I personally come up blank every
2: time. Well, if we want to measure in the categories that belong to what I call the policy left, we can absolutely do that, right? The Civil Rights Act of 1968 comes six days into the MLK riots, right? So there's one for you, civil rights. Um, That's a good one. Or Right, We can say that the global, not universal, but global phenomenon in which the state puts a limit on the price of staple grains, this is even true still in some parts of the very developed world. This is true in France right up until a decade ago that there was a a government law on how much a baguette could cost, right? Mm. Uh And and this remains true across the planet. There's a government limit in Mexico on how much a kilo of tortillas can cost. (laughs) That limitation, making sure that people can afford staple goods to stay alive, is entirely, entirely the consequence of riots, right? right? Bread riots. So even if you just want policy left answers, there's many answers, but I'm not the policy left, I'm the communist left, and I still think there's a ways to go.
1: Um, I definitely want to speak about lots of other things, including like the Anthropocene and digital culture. But I do have another question on Minneapolis and George Floyd. You know, you, you say that you wrote the book because you were interested in bread riots in the 14th century. And we do have this situation with George Floyd where the catalyzing act was him using a counterfeit $20 bill at a grocery store. And I don't know what he was buying. It doesn't matter. But the transgression that the state recognizes is that he didn't value that $20. Bill. Meanwhile, we have this real, like, schizophrenic idea of the value of that bill, right? Like, there were, like, how many thousands of 20s were being printed at the very instant. And so I guess my larger question, though, is where do you see the intersection of, like, a communist argument or, like, a an economic-based argument in this crisis and one of structural racism or the social concerns?
2: Um, Thank you for that question. I locate it in probably a a variety of different places. And I think it's really important to clarify that, especially in the last few years, when a version of the race-class debate, and I'm old enough to have lived through several iterations of the race-class opposition, but in the last couple of years in the United States, sometimes around the rise of the Democratic Socialist of America organization, there's been a revivification of it and a distinction of it and an, insist- an insistence that you can resolve racial disparities by paying attention to economic equality and class issues. And I'm very much not of that school. And I really don't mean to offer a sort of version of communism, which is a white communism, which has historically belonged to sort of a European tradition. We often forget how much of the black radical tradition identified themselves with socialism and communism, you know, C.L.R. James and James Boggs, also Claudia Jones, and on and on and on, you know. It's foundational to abstract communism, to have a critique of the very category of private property. When we think about that critique, we're obliged to think about it in the context of, as an actual historical matter, some people have been property, right? It's been the order of the world that some people have been made to be the property of others, And that profoundly transforms our sense of what property is and how it works, especially since that tradition is in many ways still with us. Right. So the demand that $20 bills be real $20 bills is part of the demand that property, which, you know, $20 bills measure property. That's all they do. Right. Right. Um, It's the demand that property remain real property and never be threatened with the idea that it stops being property. And that idea that property has to be absolutely preserved as property and that that's the fundamental obligation of the state, that has an absolutely specific, irreducible significance to people whose families and friends and parts of their other extended traditions have been captured by chattel slavery and and the way that that is still preserved to this day. So when I see the cops making sure that $20 bills are real $20 bills, at the same time that they're making sure that black people remain absolutely subordinated and subjugated. Those are the same act. Those are historically the exact same act. Another way to answer your question is again, if we take things from the side of sort of pure political economy, the question of where profits come from and where surplus value comes from, right? One of the places it comes from is driving down the wages of proletarians. And one of the main ways that wages are driven down for everyone is by the brutal violence conducted against black communities, right? The insistence that those lives matter less is a way of guaranteeing that the people subject, like vulnerable to that exposure to early death are thus compelled to accept lower wages and worse conditions if they want to try and stay alive. And that drives down living conditions for everyone. The original essay that gave us the term white privilege, which is called The White Blind Spot by Ignatine and Allen. It works through this argument really clearly, starting with Irish colonization in Great Britain, right? The, The driving down of Irish wages lowers the wages for workers everywhere. And the violent imposition through which Black Lives Matter Less is a way that surplus value and profits are generated for capital, as well as a way in which white supremacy is enacted you know, 24 hours a day on an entire population. Right. And so those two things can never be separated. They're a single phenomenon. And uh, I really have no use for people who want to want to tear them apart and treat them independently.
1: Thank you for that answer. That totally tracks.
0: I I wonder, uh, I agree with you that the racial problems and the uh, economic and class problems are inseparable. But do you think, though, right now that maybe everything is being eclipsed too narrowly by the racism narrative?
2: I think that it's probably too early to answer that question.
0: I, I agree on the time scale it might be too early. I
2: think that um, I mean, one of the things I tried to be thoughtful about in my book was the shift between the two eras I describe as riot and riot prime, right The first right. era from the you know fourteenth through the eighteenth early nineteenth century and then the current era that I call Riot Prime, which dates since the 1960s or something like that. And in that first era of riot, um, riots were more openly or immediately organized against the economy, right? the, The famous category of the bread riot, the struggle over how much it would cost to stay alive in the marketplace. That was the basis of riots. The clearly and immediately economic riots that were familiar in that first period are less familiar in the contemporary era where we mostly talk about race riots, um, understand them as arising from racial animus, racial hierarchy, racial violence. In some ways, this is inarguable. The initiating incidences over and over again, as we've seen, are cops or cop-adjacent people killing young Black people. That's not the only possible way these riots start, but this is the common format. And because they less frequently involve going down to the baker or grain merchant and saying, you have to sell this to us at a price we can afford or there's going to be hell to pay. Because we don't see that immediately, we think, well, people aren't really thinking economically about these matters. And the goal of my book was in one part to articulate this contemporary riot as also a kind of class struggle. That's not to separate class from race, but to think about how class and race go together in Stuart Hall's famous formulation, uh, race is the modality through which is lived and they can't be taken apart. So I think that when the immediate moment of violation and violence is so visibly racialized, the sense that that is the terrain of struggle is really legitimate. And I think the understanding of these economic phenomena, not instead, but as well, that develops more slowly. You know, my hope is that people will will come out of this with a better understanding of what looting is.
3: Well, I just wonder, I mean, does looting actually... Present a challenge to capital? I mean, the markets clearly decided this was no threat to their power whatsoever or to the political status quo. Not to say that I don't even want to get into morality or ethics of looting at all, but is it actually an effective political strategy? I don't see any evidence of that. Is it a, and if you're going to just call it a, an expression of anger, sure. Is there some value in self expression? I guess, but as an actual means of resistance, and this was also my main issue with occupy, this kind of fundamental misunderstanding of of where value is created. You occupy Wall Street, you don't occupy the data center.
1: But that- Conversation was, I mean, being in New York, sorry, Josh, I don't mean to. We, I mean, we always have this argument about Occupy. I mean, that was always on the table. I think the protesters but why were didn't clearly. It happen? Do you know how fucking hard it is to. Do you know people did go to the data center in New Jersey? Really? They all got arrested. Yes.
3: Well, there multiple, you go. Well, multiple, multiple, multiple. Doesn't people. that show you how ineffective? That, that they didn't deem it a threat and that's I mean, why they allowed it to, to happen?
0: Dan, you're very good at getting us to the point where the only choice is cry and die, but <laughs> we're not gonna do that today. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe my, the question,
3: my question is how does this lead to full communism? But wait,
1: maybe before we get abstract, I mean, maybe the question is also turning to the digital and like. Yeah, the this is question, another question,
3: but I, I still think, I, th- I think we should still talk about looting a little bit longer before we get
2: into the digital. Um, it's nice to have this debate with comrades. <laughs> um I think I agree with you in some small part i mean you you were prepared to reduce looting to a kind of expression like people are angry and we can understand that and I think that's um, that's rubbish um the desire to reduce practical activities to expressions is true of the desire of the state right go out and, and have a feeling and say a phrase and that's legitimate but any practical action is is illegitimate and I think looting is a practical action. So in that sense, we're very much in different places. That said, because I like to end with agreement, I agree that you're not going to make communism by looting. I, I lay this out in the book, right? That looting is a its a real practical activity. We're talking about people who can't afford to live in the marketplace and looting provides some temporary short-term solutions to that problem. Whether you're looting necessary goods or whether you're lo- looting luxury goods to sell in a secondary market so that you then have money to survive for a while, it doesn't matter. So how That's is it? It. Isn't that a stimulus check? Uh, it itself is not a route to communism. And, and as I tried to say at the end of the book, I really don't mean for this to be like a long advertisement for the book. If anyone wants to message me and get a free PDF, I'll send it to them. I'm, this is not a money-making scheme. Um, <laughs> I think that there's real limits to looting, just as I think there's real limits to the riot. This is where the book ends, right, is they both make reference to capital, right? They want better prices, but they don't want the end of the price system. They want better wages, but they don't want the end of the wage commodity system, right? And there's a third poll, right? So you have, we've, we've talked about production struggles with the strike And circulation struggles with the riot, but there's also what we'll call reproductive struggles, not just biological reproduction, right, but social reproduction, as we say, for which the exemplary form is the commune. The notable thing about reproductive struggles is figure out how a community can remake itself without reference to wages and without reference to prices. And that's the way out. Right. That's the way out. Looting is not the way out. Looting is a necessary practical activity within capitalism that should be celebrated at every turn, but it's within capitalism. It has no logic outside of it. And the way out is through escaping from the price system and the wage system. That said, the limit of the reproductive struggle of the commune, as we understand it in the present, is that it tends to simply be a commune of withdrawal, right? We think of a dozen people moving some intentional community upstate. And that's, not any challenge to capitalism whatsoever. And the question of how a commune can be at the same time, not just a withdrawal, but an antagonism, that's the big ticket political question for me. And I have some thoughts about that. But that said, I agree with you. Like, looting is necessary, it's desirable, but it's not the way out.
1: Right. Um, So can we take this now and open it up to the digital realm? God. Okay, so we talk about the riot as stopping circulation, but we know that there's nothing that's more mediagenic than an image of a riot, right? And so I wonder what to you are these digital platforms in terms of a commercial space or a public space? Because clear net platforms, they pose as your friend, but yet they're also sort of a state. They also will conduct you in a certain way. And the flip side of that is the value of these protests as images is that garner attention? Like where does the neoliberal subject, the subject who is, I mean, I don't know if you buy the whole attention economy idea, but I also know that that's the imaginary where we live. We live in the idea of attention being equated to money in your bank account. So where is the neoliberal subject in this? Where is the subject who is remediating this on social media or building up their social capital by virtue posting on Instagram. I mean, this is a multi prong question now. But can we shift this conversation into the digital spaces with the caveat that I know we're getting away from the material and that's a problem? Oh, no, but, but we're not getting
3: away from the material at okay. all. Keep that in mind. Digital- How would you... The digital is material. It's, it's, it's also a, it's true.
1: I mean, it also it burns energy or whatnot. Well, the but
3: infrastructure is fixed capital. It does require it's, the infrastructure it's not that is, but the
1: users aren't getting. No, there's not right. a direct like. I mean, we're slaves in this, right? We're like these bees that have to like operate in this space to have this semblance of creating value for ourselves, but we're not. We I mean. Or how do I even phrase this as a question? I have 35 questions in here. But these are the coordinates for talking about the digital (laughs) space. Maybe just first of all, can we speak about the spaces on which all of this is consumed, shared, understood? 70% of us are still locked in some quarantine stage and are consuming or understanding or sharing the information about the past week's activity in the digital space. How do you see these platforms?
0: Well, maybe, I mean, I was just going to add maybe a small question is, is um, riots predate media amplification of riots and how does it change Hmm. the, the utility, the way riots are processed or undertaken? The
2: first thing I want to say is I enjoy listening to the three of you puzzle things out and debate (laughs) with each other far more than I enjoy listening to myself. So I
0: appreciate
2: (laughs) appreciate that. And I encourage you all to keep going. Um, I'm not sure I have great answers to this question. Again, this question you're asking, there are people far more than I know who've really devoted extended, careful, meticulous research and elaborate theoretical development to thinking about this stuff. Like I think about Nick Dyer-Witherford and um, Alexandra Galloway and uh, my friend Hannah Zevin and various people who've been trying to puzzle these things through. And you're right, of course, about the power of these platforms I tend to be a person who's not a technological determinist. I certainly wouldn't identify myself as an autonomous school of like, labor always strikes first and capital changes itself in response to that. That's not my view of the world. That said, I do think a lot of the technological build out that we've seen around media platforms and things is a following index of struggles that are happening in the world, not a leading index or a cause. Even if you want to go back to the very roots of the Internet, right, the roots of the Internet are a desperate attempt to put together a linked communication system in response to the possibility of a certain kind of global war and global struggle. right? The DARPA net development. And, you know, on the one hand, like I know people who are involved in Tunisia and Egypt and places like that in, in, during the Arab Spring who really have great certainty about the things that Twitter enabled and other kinds of digital dissemination enabled for sharing plans and sharing tactics and sharing capacities. And I don't want to dismiss that. I generally think that technologies are more responsive to underlying changes than they are productive of, of underlying changes. The place where we would probably really divide is, or maybe not, I'm not sure, is I don't think there's such a thing as a neoliberal subject because I don't think there's such a thing as neoliberalism. <laughs> I realize this is a, like a minority position among the, the, the chattering classes of the left, which I'm clearly a part. Um, but that's just not a framework I use. I don't find it very useful The neoliberal subject, like, the person you're talking about, I think, is, like, the person who was never going to take part, whether Twitter existed or not, and they're still not taking part, but their engagement, which is different from taking part, is through Twitter. The majoritarian fantasy that political struggles have to, like, necessarily do or must involve a vast majority of the population That idea is belied by every revolutionary struggle that's ever happened in all of history, which is always conducted by a great minority. And I'm not making some anarchist claim about active minorities. I just mean revolutions don't happen because 51% of the people decided today was the day. That's that's just not what happens. But there's always a vast mass of people who are observing and talking about it down at the, the wine cellar. I mentioned wine cellar in the sense of vendor, not in the sense of basement. Because that's the scene in Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, right? Where he's trying to narrate the French Revolution. And it all happens, like people are just going down to the wine cellar and they're drinking their wine and they're talking about this uprising in the streets. And the next thing you know, the French Revolution is broken out. So I guess I don't like the fact that like, there's a bunch of looky-loos who are are being, um, who are aggregating clout by, by posting on on whatever social media platform, like I don't care. There's always a bunch of people on the sidelines. Yeah, I
3: mean, I well, I just wonder. I mean, maybe we can just talk about. We're in an age of circulation, right? Is what you claim. Social media is exemplary of that, uh, especially the ones that are advertising based, where the value extracted is not really in the data themselves. But I do think that there is something that maybe. I don't know, I'm going to be like, Marx didn't account for, but I'm going to say that. Marx didn't account for Facebook, Facebook, whatever. But there is some surplus value in the data created from that circulation intrinsically, I think. So I wonder how that fits into this idea. And the idea that all of this investment has gone into finance, insurance, Um, real estate is the r Yeah, real estate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Where does digital infrastructure fit into that?
2: oh man um yeah so again we just don't find ourselves on the same page like i don't think any surplus value is created by media companies i don't think a a single however you measure surplus value a single unit of surplus value is created by digital media companies all their income is from advertising that advertising doesn't exist unless it can be advertising for other products those other products still have to be made They can speed up the circulation of those products, right? They speed up turnover time. So you got your company making Pepsi. They can advertise on Facebook, and that's Facebook's massive income, and that can speed up the turnover time so that Pepsi sells faster and faster, maybe. Um, And then that means Pepsi produces faster and faster to keep up with its turnover time. And so there's more production and more surplus value. But the increased turnover time does not in itself increase surplus value. Now, I know that actually there's an Engels ed- edited chapter of Marx in volume two of Capital, chapter six, where he claims <laughs> that turnover time does increase rate of surplus value. And if you want to go Marxology on me, you and I will fucking go round and round for the next seven hours. Yeah, no, sure. no, I'm not, I'm not playing <laughs> <that. laughs> um, <laughs> But, but yeah, it, I, just, it? I, just don't, I don't think that's right. I think, I think that, yeah, the vast flow of money into the fire sector, that's real. That's completely real, right? And moreover, for some people, it's real money, right? They have that money and they buy their Jaguar and they actually have a Jaguar and they drive it around. So in that sense, it's real. But that's a measure of the failure of surplus value production, not of its success, right? The very fact that capital won't reinvest in production and pushes all its money into these nominal values, as they say, um, which don't increase use values at all. That's a mark of the economy's limits, not of its capacities or its growth. And I think those limits are part of what conditions the increase of riots. So the rise of fire sector is the rise of riots, right? Because we all know that riots and fire go together.
3: <laughs> yeah, but
2: yeah, I just
3: I, I struggle with the idea that data itself, that the production of data can't have surplus value outside of being, you know, consumer behavior data for advertisers. I don't know exactly uh, if it fits into a Marxist framework. But whether or not it's for sociological purposes or for political control or just for scientific research in itself, but the data that's created by the circulation of data is real and is surplus. I I don't know. I I mean, I I don't know how that squares in with things, but I I don't think it's only advertising At the
0: end, doesn't it all come down to monetizing time, monetizing attention at Itself monetizing, I mean, the internet is basically they just made like a simulated mirror of the entire world and started monetizing everything in it. No, but it, with it enables, fractions enables new services, of a it enables um, new
3: services and things that couldn't exist without it. It's not. I mean, I think that's that's overlooking a lot of the growth in the economy that is not just finance or insurance, I mean, it's but still, is it's ephemeral. Like, it's
0: accelerating services, though, right? I don't, but I'm not. I don't know anything about real markets. I mean, what about proper,
3: OnlyFans, so. for instance? I mean,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you're monetizing. that's gray uh, yeah, like economy stuff. No, it's
3: it's surplus value created by the cir- circulation of data. I, I mean, I, I don't know, but.
2: I didn't realize this. we were doing like a value theory podcast. I didn't know <laughs> I would spend like three hours for that. Um, but like monetizing and surplus value are not necessarily related, right? I can, I, I, can, I can demonstrate for you through like a series of thought experiments that like you can monetize all kinds of stuff and generate massive profits in one sector and it doesn't in any way cause growth, right? It doesn't in any way lead to accumulation, which is only driven by surplus value. And like monetizing and profit are not intrinsically related to accumulation and growth. And that confusion is exactly the confusion that leads people to think like, well, Google's really crushing it. The economy must be expanding. The economy's not expanding. Look at the fucking interest rates. You understand what sets interest rates is rate of profit, right? Because you can't set interest rate higher than rate of profit because no one will borrow money then. You won't borrow money at a higher rate than the rate of profit. Interest rate tracks rate of profit really clearly, more clearly than any other indicator. Interest rate's been a de facto zero for years. There's no expansion in the economy. There's massive profits for Facebook, massive profits for Alphabet, and no expansion. There's no surplus value there. So... Um, like, talking about what monetizing stuff doesn't get us there. Uh, I don't
0: know. I mean, yeah. I consider Google I, and Facebook as like rentierism on your brain. Well, what like, is the surplus <laughs> value
3: time? of of like World of Warcraft gold? Like, there are digital goods that are created that are ephemeral. Is it extractive? Arguably, yes, but it also is something created. Uh, but that's a yeah. it's a different yeah, conversation. I know, I know. Anyway, whatever. I, I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I just do think that the the definition of fire is maybe too limited in scope about novel ways that capital.
2: I I agree with that. Like if we're talking about the category that doesn't produce surplus value, we need to expand it, but that's (laughs) the category we're talking about. Okay.
1: Thank you for that. Um, I wonder, can we pivot now to the earth earth question? So, you know, simultaneous to this, Hong Kong is going through a fundamental change with its legal system as China now exercises ever more control. We know that China is a place both where there is incredible resource extraction and also the inability, more or less, to, to protest. The state shows itself very, very quickly there if you start to resist it. Um, so I know that when we emailed, you said that you have been paying attention to the pipeline protests and also to the open pit mining in Nordrhein-Westphalia in Germany, which have both had very visible um, and very, in, in a way, like very zeitgeisty protest. Um, and I mean, I hope you'll forgive me for uh, returning again to this Foucault idea of security territory populations. But there seems to be a fight right now for whose land this is. Could anyone have ownership over it? You know, what is being protected? Where is the violence being done? And yeah, what future populations are being protected? And um, and so when you noted those protests what what was it for you that brought those two incidents to the fore in light of the anthropocene
2: Yeah thank you for that question uh, the first thing I should admit is that the question of like land ownership is one I feel very vexed about You know I I still think that the possibility of human flourishing is premised on people not owning things in that way but in, including land That said the tradition of land sp- Stewardship, it's often the word we use among indigenous populations, is one I, that I take very seriously, in part because it's been at the heart of many of the most important political struggles and political moments for a long time, but especially in the recent past. And in some regards, the fact that the question of land stewardship is at the heart of these struggles, that does put a set of questions you'd think of as and maybe about sovereignty or things like this, on the table although there's scholars of this question that that don't always go to the issue of sovereignty. I think of Shiri Pasternak, for example, who's a very interesting scholar who writes about indigenous struggles in North America. So if I think about Standing Rock or the encampment in Germany or various other places like that, what's powerful for me about them is that the ways that they're both a circulation struggle and a reproduction struggle, right? They're a circulation struggle in the sense that they're blocking they're blocking the mobility of capital, right? Of the actual circulation of extractive goods, of coal, of natural gas, of various fossil fuels. So circulation struggles often are related to land, right? As they try and articulate in the book, circulation is about space and labor is about time. Reproduction is about time. That's how these things get measured. Uh, And so circulation struggles are deeply related to, although they're not identical to land struggles. Uh, But it's not just about owning the land. It's about stopping capital from moving through it, right? Mm -hmm. It's about, preventing capital, and particularly, as you know, environmentally uh, catastrophic capital. Um, All capital is that, but this capital in particular, the, the, the fossil resources. So it's a circulation struggle, and at the same time, it's a reproduction struggle, right? Once you have that camp set up, it has to remake itself every day. It's a de facto commune or a commune in the making. The political center of the camp is the often quite difficult, often quite infuriating nightly general assembly but the functional heart of the camp is the kitchen, right? That's right. That's, that's making food for people to, to eat and stay alive and be able to function be able to stay in the camp and for the camp to preserve itself. So the, the self-reproducing capacity of the camp is fundamental to its character as a reproductive struggle, a struggle in the sphere of reproduction, at the same time that its blocking of capital is its function as a circulation struggle. The notable phenomenon is that these two aren't distinct, each one is the other. The camp remakes itself as a blockade. So that overcomes the sort of ideological opposition that's sometimes produced between you know, militant attacks on capital and then care work, and and, and these turn out to be the same thing, right? The care work of reproductive labor and the militancy of of the circulation struggle are the same act. And that unity is, I think, what gives these these phenomena like Standing Rock and others, their power. And that's why I think of them as a, if not the most hopeful form of struggle that we're seeing in the present.
0: I have a one question. And Dan, tell me if I'm right about this, but the idea of dual power or setting up a sort of more autonomous community structures as heading towards a sort of a patchwork arrangement Of course, patchwork has proximity to some really kind of toxic neo-reactionary figures. Do you think, though, the idea of a patchwork, of dual power, of creating more autonomous or village-sized autonomy uh, should be something that the left should re-embrace without worry about its proximity to more toxic uh, political discourses?
3: Abandon the universal and try to I don't know, have some pockets of actually enacting the ideology that you you want sure, and, I, and we're right. thinking
1: about this at a time when I mean I know when I, I initially had an email to you, Joshua, because I was thinking through who could we ask to help us think through empire at twenty years, and we now are seeing a very very different political moment than Hart and Negri imagined in the nineties when they were writing this. So I wonder if it can be read through that lens somehow, like patchwork now as a pushback against this globalizing force the capital presents.
2: Well, you don't hesitate to ask the big questions. Um, It seems to me very likely that a meaningfully anti-capitalist, meaningfully liberatory set of struggles will necessarily pass through climate survival as a goal, and I think that will necessarily pass through a phase of degrowth. Right, And degrowth means not just the end of of economic expansion, uh, probably degrowth of the scale of economies. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, oh, autarky is good and we're going to return to something like, you know, the Italian city-states at the largest possible scale, and that's good. (laughs) It seems to me likely that if we're going to survive, we're going to head in that direction for a while. Whether there can be a re-expansion and a re-knitting together of global circuits, I don't know. That's that's far in the future, if we make it. Mm. Um, But... I think we're definitely going to pass through a period of, of degrowth and a period of localization. Thinking about how that's going to work politically is a serious question. I'm not sure I identify like the thing you're calling patchwork um, entirely with dual power. There's been various dual power propositions of various kinds that have been helpful less helpful and like, it's not, I'm not sure it's easy to compare the dual power proposition of Hamas with the dual power proposition <laughs> of the Biden for self-defense. Right. Um, but the sense that various structures that have been federalized and left to macro organizations to manage will return to the need for kind of local organizing. That seems to me inevitable. So it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It, it matters that we know it's coming. if if there's to be any survival at all, and to think about what our relation toward that uh, might be. And and in that, being attentive to the new kinds of local powers that are likely to arise in some ways very pernicious and destructive and dangerous populist, fascist, local movements, obviously we have to be attentive to that, very much so.
3: Okay, this is a big question too, but um, I just wonder on an emotional level, as a leftist, how do you deal with, this quixotic struggle like how do you deal with losing for decades on end what keeps you in the fight what gives you hope that you won't always be resisting this bulldozer and that you'll at some point be a (laughs) vanguard again because this is something that yeah I struggle (laughs) with myself (laughs) like I don't I don't particularly love feeling like an underdog. I don't I don't fetishize underdogism, you know? I like the idea of, you know, the left becoming the vanguard again. And I just wonder, how do we recapture that?
2: Well, you have to struggle with this question more than I do because you're young. You have a long ways to go of fighting this fight. And you're right to name that something like an emotional fight or like how do we yourself to it? And I'm not sure there's an easy answer. Um, the one thing I'll say, and it may be too... The timescale may be two telescopes to feel meaningfully hopeful, but one of the things I know is everything ends, right? Every form of human organization that's ever been brought into being has ended. Hmm. Um, And capitalism is one of those things. Capitalism is going to end. It might end with something worse. That, for me, is the hard knowledge, right? right. The the fact (laughs) that this might just be forever, of us losing forever, that is less of a concern for me because I know that there's no locked-in stasis that endures forever, that capitalism ends. So the question is how it's going to end and what kind of roles we can play in shaping that ending and what might emerge from it. And because I know that that ending happens, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in your lifetime, maybe not, it gives me some sense that there's a reason to keep going. I admit that it's hard. Again, I think it's harder for you. Yeah.
1: Fair enough. Joshua, if there's anywhere that you feel we should be looking right now beyond your book, which is great, is there any place where, um, are there any resources or any individual voices that you find particularly important right now that should be on our radar?
2: Most of the people I would recommend probably don't want to have their names Named. I have a really good friend who's in Minneapolis right now and doing organizing on the ground, but they have uncertain immigration status. They're not a U.S. citizen. So I think there's been a lot of interesting work that's come out of the same riots that I was interested in. Uh, There's a scholar named Andrea Boyles who wrote a book about Ferguson that I think is really worth reading. The things I've been trying to think about have been these kind of mixed, Reproductions slash circulation struggles and people who are thinking about those. So particularly a bunch of indigenous scholars mm. who've been thinking about those in North America, Turtle Island. I would name Glenn Sean Coulthard, who's a really important scholar for me. Nick Estes. I mentioned Shiri Pasternak, the Land Back organization, um, which I think is run by the Yellowhead Institute, if I remember it correctly, which has a great website, which talks about a lot of these things. And then there's people who are thinking about the situation in Germany. I know Andreas Malm, who's one of our great climate writers, has a book coming out called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. So those are some people I would call out.
1: Excellent. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time this morning for you, this evening for us. Um, this has been clarifying and motivating, and uh, it is really helpful to have these trans-historical models to think through these big events. Otherwise, they're just reduced to a bunch of cop cars on fire for your Instagram, and then what can you do with that? So we sincerely appreciate you adding uh, a lot of thought to what seems like a complicated moment.
0: You. Yep. You also have a really clear logic and voice. I have a feeling that like there's gonna be like a little you in my head, kind of like framing things in different <laughs> ways when I think about them. That no, for real. sure.
3: Also, which definitely. is really
0: helpful when you can when you can start to project into other people's minds. sort of mental push mental back map a bit on certain
2: yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that, that's the old internet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast and thank you, Joshua Clover, for joining us. Joshua's book, Riot Strike Riot, is available from Verso Press. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and response to this episode on our Discord. If you're not already a member, join us at patreon.com slash newmodels. The organization we are looking towards and supporting during this time of unrest is Black Socialists in America. You can find them at Black Socialists on Twitter.